good morning. Um, my name is Keith Jones. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, and I <laughs> uh, just want to take this time real quick, um, inviting everybody. Uh, next week, uh, Sunday school uh, will be, we'll take a little break from the 1689. We'll be teaching on the office of the deacon. Um, and then uh, regular order of service, but the sermon uh, will be uh, from Michael Dinger, Pastor Michael Dinger from Cornerstone. He'll be up, and he'll be preaching on the office of pastor or elder. Um, I also want to take this opportunity. Um, it is Pastor Appreciation uh, Day, so Miss Jess, if you would come up. Dun dun dun. Not that she's a pastor, but along with <laughs> obviously Pastor Rick, but the appreciation the appreciation goes further than that, obviously. Um, with, with uh, Fernandez as a family. Um, so uh, we, we as a congregation uh, wanted to show our appreciation, um, just a small token, but that is for y'all. Um, and uh, again, um, we are <laughs> in deep gratitude. Um, we know the sacrifices that you guys make um, and have made uh, over the last two years, um, including the moving up from Florida. Um, I know uh, more than one person today already said, um, man, I miss his preaching, um, <laughs> those up from Florida. Um, but it's online. So <laughs> he, ain't, he ain't coming back and you can visit anytime. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, obviously it's, we are in deep gratitude. We, we appreciate you and your family uh, immensely. Um, and we look forward to serving alongside you guys um, for years to come. So um, I'll turn it over to our deacon. Yes, thank you. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, very thankful and very appreciative. Um, but, you know, you're an elder also. So we also have a gift for you. And we thought, we, we thought you know, you're having your ordination service and... What, you know, what better thing could, you know, what could we do to make his ordination special, service special? And we thought if your elder son, eldest son was here, you might have an awesome ordination service. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get back to our regularly scheduled service. <laughs> Amen. All right, Logan, sit down. <laughs> Amen, brother. All right, let's pray. Oh, almighty God, I'm, I'm so grateful for this place and these people here. I'm thankful to you for this time we get to hear your word. I pray that you would 
uh, be with us, Lord. The only way we hear your word is uh, through prayer, and we need uh, to use your servant today and uh, deliver your word and help it to bring conviction on those that know you and help it to bring to uh, bring your word to those that don't know you and uh, that they would hear today and they would come to know you as their God. And uh, I'm grateful to you for uh, bringing Logan back to our family. Uh, what a great surprise. And um, I'm just so thankful to you for this place and the people here. I pray that you would uh, be with our pastors, Pastor Rick and Pastor Keith. I'm so thankful to serve alongside them and be with them. And I pray that you would protect them and protect their families as we move forward as a church, Lord, and help us to uh, stay focused on you and your word and help us to love each other and love you. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so brother, we love you. We appreciate you. I love you. I appreciate you, your sacrifice, your service for us. I got you. <laughs> All right. That, it, it was a. It, it was a. Uh, 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 it was a, a group of us. It was an effort, but. <laughs> hey, look. R- Ruth was justified, uh, and I think we're we are we are justified. And uh, that's right. That's right. So, uh, all right. Well, let's uh, turn our attention now to the word, if we're able to, and not be distracted. Um, let's turn to John chapter 12. And I'll be reading verses 20 through 26. John chapter 12. Beginning at verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Amen. God is doing, Christ is doing, more in this world than we could ever imagine. As as, uh, Jesus' disciples are gathered there at the feast, none of them would have imagined that God-fearers, these Greeks, would be searching for Jesus. We don't know exactly how they found out about Christ or what their purpose in speaking to Christ was. We We don't have anything else with regards to these Greeks. 
As the Magi from the east came, at least they came because they saw an amazing sign. We know they saw the star and they wanted to come to worship the king of Israel. But it's not quite clear why these Greeks come from this text. But what we do know is that Jesus was busy doing his father's work. And as he was busy doing his father's work, he is drawing all men to himself. When he is rightfully lifted up, this is what he does. He draws people to himself from from everywhere. So, for example, if he's lifted up in a particular church and there aren't any other good churches around, you know what will happen? People will drive long distances to come to hear Christ being lifted up, to see him being lifted up in the service that the people render to one another and to the people in that area. When he is rightfully lifted up, all men are drawn to him. All manner of men are drawn to him. I just have two points for this sermon. The first is, Christ teaches us here that living comes through dying. Life comes through death. Note with me in the passage first that uh, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And this was normal practice. Uh, When the Jews were dispersed uh, during the Babylonian captivity, they came in contact with all manner of people, not only Greeks, but wherever they were worshiping, they would draw the attention of uh, Gentiles, all forms and manner of Gentiles. And these Gentiles would then become uh, what in the book of Acts is called, they were God-fearers. That category meant that they were not fully integrated into the Jewish people. One of the things that, uh, in particular, the Greeks found repulsive was circumcision. They'd worship. They'd even keep the dietary laws at times. But circumcision to them was something they were not willing to do. So these men are coming up to the feast to worship because they had come in contact with the Jewish people. And maybe as reports are going out about what Jesus is doing, these Greeks find out that he's there. Or maybe when they get to the feast, right? There's, there's millions of people, as we discussed maybe last week or the week before, as Josephus reports, there's millions of people there. So maybe the report gets to them and they hear that the Messiah is there and they come now and they're drawn to him and they want to, to speak to Jesus. So they go through the channels, right? Philip and Andrew and... They want to see him. We wish to see Jesus. And when Jesus hears this, he makes this point. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What is it about this occasion that, that uh, causes Jesus to make this statement? He knows now it's time for his glorification. Well, first, what, what does he mean by being glorified? It's not, it's not worship. That's not what he's talking about. Look at John 17. John 17, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus is now, he's praying for himself. So in the synoptic gospels, you have uh, him kneeling and praying and great drops of blood. But here we have this, the high priestly prayer of Christ. And he pray, He says, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So the glorification of the son, of course, is a glorification of the father. But it is tied to the giving of eternal life. His glorification is tied to or is a means by which eternal life is given. So that's the first step. Next, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the glorification of the Son is tied to the giving of eternal life, and the giving of eternal life comes through knowing God in Christ. Okay, that's the second step. Now, verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Okay, what's Jesus talking about here? Now, the Son has completed his work on earth, and now he is going to return to the Father. There's going to be a, a union of glory, the glory he received on earth, and it's going to be mingled with this glory that he had before the world began with the Father. So these two glories, the, the earthly glory of the Son of Man and the glory of the Son of God are going to be joined. How? How is this going to happen? Well, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's, he's offering this prayer to God the Father. And the reason he does this, uh-huh, he's praying for his disciples. Verse 10. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. So, so note this. This has to do with the glorification of the Son has to do with his departure. He's leaving. And what's the door through which he exits the world? It's the cross. It's the cross. Verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may, know, may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me in the world. And this is going to be tied to the statement he makes about his death. So give, uh, pay attention to this. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself. That they also may be sanctified by the truth. What's his sanctification? His setting apart. This is death. 
And his death is the means by which his people are set apart. They are sanctified for himself. So the glorification of the son, what he's, what he's talking about in John chapter 12, is his death. That is his glorification. Now, why is it that Jesus knows excuse me, that the coming of the Gentiles to see him is, is the point in which his de- now his death is coming? Well, this is tied to the specific purpose of the coming of the Messiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. In Isaiah chapter 49, you have this um, this servant song. And uh, most of the headings in your Bible speak about him being a light to the Gentiles. So, hear the words of Isaiah. He says, listen, beginning at verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me. And take heed, you peoples from afar. Isaiah 49, verse 1. And uh, the Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Now you remember when the angel comes to Mary and he tells Mary what his name is going to be. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. So, so um, the Messiah is, is, is an instrument of war. That's what he is. He is an instrument of war that God has, has hidden. It's not very noticeable that he is an instrument of war. When he came into the world, this is one of the things that Jesus uh, came into the world to do. He came into the world to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. But he does it in an obscure way. He doesn't do it by military force and power. He doesn't amass a huge army of Jews and then uh, conquer Rome. That's not how he does it. Because that's not how God works. The way he does it is foolishness to the world. He does it by means of the cross. He said to me, verse 3, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And note that the Messiah is called Israel. In whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord. And my work is with my God. Okay, so what's going on here, right? So th- this, this may be, this may be a, 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 we may be getting a snapshot of that prayer in Gethsemane where the Messiah is praying and remember what he says to God. He says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. That was his desire. That wasn't, that wasn't a, a, uh, a faux prayer. Right, just offered up for the sake of conversation. You know, for, for, for exegesis. That's not what it was offered for. 
He was really praying this. Why? Because at that time, how many people were following him? Maybe 15? It would seem that the work that the Messiah was going to accomplish was going to be greatly frustrated. In the eyes of men, of course, it looked that way. The nation of Israel as a whole had rejected him. If there were any Gentiles that believed in him, there were maybe a couple of Greeks. So it seems that his work is frustrated. So he says, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work is with God. Before God, I've not failed. So what does God say to him? And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And so the, the purpose of the sending of the Messiah was to gather the nation of Israel. Has he done that? Uh, and particularly at this point in the Gospels. Has he done that? No. No, not at all. He's not done it yet. Verse 6, indeed he says... This is what God says to his servant now. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's not sufficient. It's not sufficient that the nation of Israel should be the only people that worship you. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Greeks coming to Jesus is, is almost a token from the Father, showing him that your purposes are not frustrated. The Gentiles are being drawn to you. You will be a light to the nations. It's very similar to, to that event that happens in the upper room where the disciples are there with Jesus and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Spirit. Well, had they received the Spirit then and there? No, they didn't receive the Spirit at Pentecost, but it was a sign or a token, a symbol that the Spirit would be poured out on them. And the coming of the Gentiles, it's a token from God the Father to the Son showing him, your work will not be frustrated. Not only will the, the, the Jewish people come, those who are called, but the Gentiles will flock to you. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, to the servant of rulers. Well, who else, who could he be speaking of? Right? Remember uh, from last week, the entire nation was gathered and they're offering false worship but really they despise him. When it's time to choose between him and a criminal, who do they choose? Give us Barabbas. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Crucify him is what they cry. You see, men are not naturally drawn to Christ. They are supernaturally drawn to him. The eyes of their understanding must be opened. The spirit must so work that their minds and hearts are transformed to see the glory of Christ. 
Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritage, that you may say to the prisoner, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. So, um, the coming of the Greeks is a token and a sign that the Messiah's work has not been frustrated. So then he now begins to comment upon this truth in John chapter 12. Listen, to, now pay attention to the commentary. Because Jesus understands what is supposed to happen for the redemption of the world. Living through dying or life through death. What does it mean for the Son to be glorified? that all men would be drawn to him. But now look at his comments. Verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. How? Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And, and this is a common a common thing that everybody knows. What happens to a seed when you put it in the ground? In essence, it dies. Essentially, that's what happens to the seed. But then it produces that little seed. You know, these little seeds that were put out here, they, they've produced some pretty good peaches this year. Bundles of them, right? Some of us have taken them home and enjoyed them. And this is what Jesus is saying, that he has to die that there might be a harvest for God. It produces much grain or much fruit. Now, uh, this, this next verse is important and it's important to understand exactly how Jesus is saying this. Uh, who is he, so the, the question that you have to ask or think to yourself is who is he talking about in verse 24? But well, he's talking about himself, about his own death. So who is he talking about in verse 25? He's talking about himself. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. That is the way that Jesus lived his life. He lived his life in this world. Now, you know, this is not like literal hatred. You know, uh, suicide or uh, so, some conception like that where there was this self-loathing where Jesus actually hated his own personal life. But Jesus conducted his life or he lived in such a way that when other people were looking in upon his life, they would think this man, he must want to die. If he knew that continuing to preach and to teach and to raise people from the dead and to do, do all of the things that he was doing was going to bring the Jewish nation against him, what would have been the natural thing for Jesus to do? Stop. They're going to kill you. But what does he do? He lives as if he hates his own life. And why does he do this? Because he is procuring, he's, he's doing something. He is getting eternal life for his people. That is why Jesus lives the way that he does. Because he has a particular 
goal and purpose, the glory of his father and the salvation of his people. So, life comes through death. J.C. Rao writes, he says, our Lord would have known that he came to, would have them know, his disciples, and even the Greeks, they must have been standing there to hear this. Our Lord would have them know that he came to carry a cross and not to wear a crown. That's his purpose for coming into the world, was to die. That, the glorification of the Son, happens at the cross. Of course, his resurrection and his exaltation, yes, but here what Jesus has in view is his death, his going out of the world. And again, as I said during the Sunday school class, this is what, what uh, Peter describes as the sufferings of Christ. Christ's sufferings are his glory. They are the things that we as God's people rejoice in. When we take the Lord's Supper, are we celebrating the resurrection of Christ? No. We're celebrating his death. We celebrate his sufferings because by his stripes we are healed. It is the sufferings of Christ that are the means by which we are delivered from the wrath of God. But then, you know, Paul tells us that we ought to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples very clearly, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That, is, that ought to be the pattern of the Christian life. This uh, a cross-centered life. For a father... To be a good father, he must die to himself daily. There are going to be hobbies and, you know, shiny, bobbly things that you want that you can't get for yourself because you have a family to take care of. To be a good mother, there are going to be times when you want uh, time for yourself where you have to sacrifice to care for your husband and to care for your children. To be a good Christian, there are going to be times when you have to sacrifice your precious time to care for other people when you don't want to. The Christian life, so, so uh, you know, you can come to this verse and you can make it, right, um, um, I'm going to build a coffin and put my belongings in it and send it to China because I'm never coming back. But, and yeah, Jesus might mean that for some people. But for the majority of us, what Jesus means is the daily habit of dying. And even in the mundane things, like dying to uh, uh, social media so that you can open your Bible and read it. Dying to entertainment so that you can commune with God in prayer. There is a daily dying in the Christian life. And there is a glory in dying. We were talking about this yesterday. It came up in conversation several times, me, me and Keith. We're driving, and I thought of a sermon that I'd listened to. And the pastor makes the point, um, he, driving through New Jersey, he, and during the fall, 
And he says that he, he notices the foliage and the beauty and the color. You know, you get all these reds and browns and oranges and all of these strange mixtures, sometimes even purples, this beautiful color. But what if, what's happening to those trees? They're dying. And it's only God, he, and the pastor makes the point, he says it's only God who could bring such beauty out of death. And when a Christian person is dying daily, it may be difficult for you to die daily. You might, you might, be, you might feel it. You might be thinking to yourself, I'm dying here, serving this person. <laughs> yeah. But there is a beauty in dying. There was beauty at the cross. Real beauty at the cross. Because at the cross, for many reasons, but... Uh, if, you, if you think justice was being administered perfectly. You know, that's one of the things that was happening at the cross. God was being just. The, the, the most justice that we've ever seen on earth is at the cross. Because what our sins deserve was an eternity of damnation, hell, and judgment. And Jesus takes upon himself the condemnation that we rightfully deserve. God was being just. But then mercy, as John Stott put it, mercy and justice, they kiss at the cross. Because what we don't deserve, we receive from the cross. Deliverance from the wrath of God. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And that's beautiful. Only God can do that. So when Jesus tells us, so when Jesus says that this is the way that the Messiah has to go, right? This is, this is the way that the elder brother has to live his life, right? So our elder brother enters into this world of suffering that he might one day attain eternal glory. And then he holds our hand and he says, come on, you come with me. Come with me through sufferings, through difficulties, through a world of hell, right? Though I walk, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because sometimes faintly, but I can see my elder brother walking before me. So I can follow him. He's going to follow him. He won't lead me in the wrong direction. For what profit is it to a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. You could, you could gain everything in this world. A beautiful family, a ton of money, a big house, nice cars, all of the shiny things that you want. And then on the day of judgment, as God says in Isaiah, God will lay all of those things low. And you're just going to stand there ashamed of yourself. Because you'll understand, at that point, what will come to mind is I should have died to myself. I should have died to myself. There is nothing that you should give in exchange for your soul. And that is what Jesus is he's, he's teaching us. And he teaches by example. Right? There, there should be, um, in, in war, uh, uh, a general should not be distinguished from his soldiers. 
So, general, so the general will dress the same as the soldiers. He's not dressed any different. And he works just as much as they do. You know why? So when the enemy is looking with his binoculars, he doesn't say, hey, the guy in the beach chair, blow his head off. Right? He's, he's, he's the guy. He's not working. And Christ, when he enters into the world, he labored more than any of his disciples. And they follow him in that pattern of dying to self. And now he compounds to this because look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor. My, uh, him, my father will honor. So living comes through dying. But freedom comes through servitude. Honor from God comes through being a slave. A slave to Christ and a slave to others. That's the point he's making here. And this is how Jesus lived. Jesus came into the world. He was born of a woman, born under the law. He made the law. He gave the law at Mount Sinai. But he subjects himself to the law and to all of it. To circumcision, to dietary laws. He knew how good bacon tasted. Because he made pigs. Never had a piece of bacon while he was on earth. Why? Because he was, he was a, a servant. That's why he came into the world. A servant to God and a servant to his people. He came to wash feet. That's why he came into the world. And what he's saying is that where I am, my servant is going to be there with me. What does he mean by that? I, I, think, I think you can take that two ways. The, 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 the glorious way is this, is those who are united to Christ are seated with him in heavenly places. We're there with him. We, we can speak as if the realities that Christ is now enjoying, they're mine. Nobody could take them from me because I am united to him by faith. But then Christ is also in the trenches ministering and serving his people. And if you are our servant, that's where you are. That's what I think. Look at, um, look at Revelation chapter 14. And uh, it's almost one o'clock, so eventually I'll preach the Revelation, but I'll give you a... This is, this is how I would interpret this passage. And then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Okay, so here's a, so if you believe that the church is going to be raptured, right, and then there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation, and uh, the church is not on earth, and the Holy Spirit is not actually converting people, some believe that, and there's a seven-year period of tribulation, and then at the end, Jesus comes back. And between that seven-year period, Jesus is in heaven with the church, okay? If you read the book of Revelation, if you think that's what's going to happen, in this part of the book of Revelation, Jesus is supposed to be in heaven. But he's on Mount Zion. Zion. He's standing there on Mount Zion. That's what it says. And, and now, if you're going to interpret the passage literally, it literally says... A lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him 
140,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. All right, so he's supposed to be on Mount Zion. I continue. And I heard the voice from heaven. Yeah, and I heard a voice from heaven like a voice of many waters and like the voice of thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, and they are vir- for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits of God and of the Lamb. And their mouth was found, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So I would, venture, I would say that you can't interpret this literally if you believe there's a seven-year tribulation where Jesus is in heaven with the church. You can't interpret this. You've got to do something else with it. Right? I think this is what you should do with the passage. What this is talking about is the redemption of sinful people, right? And they come to Christ and minister and serve with him. And wherever Christ is in the world, wherever he leads his church, if he leads his church to Central Florida, or if he leads them to Woolworthing, or if he leads them to Canada, he leads them to wherever, wherever he leads them, his little lambs are there. They're there with their lamb, lion, shepherd as he's leading them through this world. Um, and so uh, read uh, Hebrews chapter 13. He says, uh, well, let's read it together. How about that? This may seem like, it's an, uh, this is an aside. Or like Owen would say, this is an exercisation. Uh, look at Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, oh, excuse me, it's in chapter, uh, chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author to the book of Hebrews, speaking to the church, he says this in verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. He's talking about Mount Sinai. That's not where you've come. Okay, now skip to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the, and, and to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we've come. He's not, not saying you're going to come. Because spiritually, we've entered into this reality where we have participation with Christ by the Spirit and even with heaven. That's what he's saying. You've come. You're, not you're coming, but this is where you've come. You've been taken out of the world. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Where was his throne established in Israel? Mount Zion. Spiritually, that's where we've come. That's, that's where we are as his people. So, so Christ then, wherever he is with his church, Wherever, or wherever his church is, Christ is there with him. Or wherever Christ leads his church, that's where they go. So when he leads them into sufferings, he's there with them. Because he's led them, he's brought them into those sufferings with a purpose. When Christ leads them into service to one another, that's where they are. Serving one another. 
I'd like to take more time here, but I'll use some restraint. Freedom through servitude then. Or, or uh, go back to John. This is how we are freed or how we receive honor. If you want to be honored, right? So um, Achilles wanted honor. That's what he wanted. So if you've ever read, you should read the Iliad. It's a fantastic, fantastic piece of fiction, I guess. But Achilles wanted glory. That's what he wanted. So, so what he wanted was he wanted to die on the field of battle, fighting a, a, a gigantic war, and he wanted to die there. And he would have received glory and honor and prestige, and everybody would have remembered Achilles because he died magnificently. And as Christian people, you know, we should want honor too. We should want honor and glory from God. And when we receive honor and glory from God, we won't receive it from men. Men won't look at the things that you've done in this world in service to God and to Christ as of any value or worth. It it will seem like absolute nonsense, the things that you've done. You spent an entire summer scraping an old chapel? There's probably asbestos in that paint. (laughs) You, You shaved 10 years off your life doing that. It's, it's foolish to men when you serve Christ and when you serve his people. But that is a way of attaining honor from God the Father. And that's one of the things that, we, that need to be on our mind as Christian people. I want to hear, you should want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom I have prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Let him follow me, and where I am, in, he- in the heavenly places or in the trenches, serving God's people, there my servant will be. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. My father will confer honor among, uh, on that person. On the day uh, when Christ returns, I don't know how that's all going to work out and how many days it is, but on one of those days, you know what he's going to give his people? Crowns. He's going to put crowns on our heads. We'll probably be dressed really nice too on that day, wearing you know white robes that 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 display our righteousness in Christ. And he's going to put crowns on our heads. And then we're going to take those crowns and we're going to throw them at Jesus' feet. I want my crown to be ginormous. I want to take a huge crown off my head and give it to Christ. And that's what you should want also. And the only way you'll do that is in service to him. All right? And so, uh, well, how do I serve him now on earth? Think of parallels or maybe even contrast. When Paul is persecuting the church, what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So if you're serving God's people, what is Christ going to say? Good job. You're serving me. Right? When... uh, um, when, Jesus, when did we care for you? When did we give you a cup of water? When, when, when did we do all of that stuff? What are you talking about? I had no idea. When you did it to the least of these, you did it for me or to me, is what Jesus says. So let's remember these two things, brothers and sisters, that living comes through dying. And honor, glory, freedom from the power of sin comes 
to, through servitude, through serving Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity to study your word and to preach your word. Lord, we ask that you would please bless uh, the fellowship that we're going to have. Uh, bless this meal, Lord. Uh, bless just the, uh, the joy and the excitement of all that we're celebrating and of the many um, uh, guests that we have here this uh, Sunday and that will be here next week. Lord, we thank you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.